Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. So we are casting vision as a church, and to do this, we are essentially sketching a picture of our church in 10 years' time. And so far, we have sketched a church in 10 years that integrates faith and work, that cultivates deep spiritual formation, and that initiates redemptive hospitality. But today, we're going to talk about our location And when I say location, I'm not talking about the parking lot of NPC. (laughs) And when I'm saying location, I'm not even really talking about the brick and mortar building that we will meet in. No, see, part of our vision is the conviction that Ohio State will be more than just a GPS location for hope. It's more than sort of near where we meet. It's more than where many of us work. It's more than where a lot of us live. We believe that God wants our church to serve the students, the faculty, the institutions, the employees, the entire cultural ecosystem of the Ohio State University in a unique way, and all the campuses as well, in the constellation of universities that Columbus hosts. This doesn't mean that we're going to be solely focused on campus as if we were to become a campus church. But we do believe that God has shaped us and placed us here for a reason. We are a church, in other words, that's not just near campus, but for campus. And Acts 17 is going to be a guide for us this morning and for many years to come as we explore exactly what that means. And so let's read starting in verse 16 this morning. Acts 17, verse 16. This is God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Interesting. That word resurrection, Anastasius, they probably thought that Paul was talking about two deities. This deity named Jesus and this deity named Anastasia. So Paul had to clarify, (laughs) which he does later. Verse 19, and they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, 
all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, that's Jesus, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, end quote. And some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are indeed his offspring, end quote. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given full assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some enjoined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, would you empower this time? This is the word that you superintended, that you breathed out. So soften our hearts now as your word goes forth. So it would do what it sought out to accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I was talking with somebody who lives outside of Columbus, and he asked me where I lived because he heard that I was from Columbus, and I told him, I said, I live in Grandview Heights. And he looked a bit confused when I said that. And so I told him, basically, I live a bike ride from the shoe, and then the light light bulb went off. And when I said that, it really dawned on me that I live at the beating heart, not just of Columbus, but of Ohio. I take for granted that on a daily basis, I drive by one of the premier cancer hospitals in the world. I drove by it this morning getting here. That I see a Goodyear blimp on game days on my front yard. That I share a zip code with over 6,000 international students from more than 100 different countries. And I wonder if we take that for granted even as a church. For years before COVID, we met at the Metro School, which is a campus building. We didn't meet near campus. We literally met on campus. I mean, next to our church sign, which is beside me, There was a sign that said, The Ohio State University. 
when Ohio State goes on spring break, our church building went on spring break. When Ohio State has finals, our church building, the students have finals. When Ohio State shut down and sent their students home last year, the Metro School shut down and sent their students home last year. I even remember in 2013 when President Obama gave the commencement address to Ohio State. There were security guards sitting in the parking lot of our church during worship. That's how close we are to campus. But I wonder if over the years we have started to see campus as a background and not a mission ground. So close that we take it for granted. So close that we miss our mission. See, part of our vision in 10 years is that Hope will be a church that is not just near campus, but is for the life of campus and all that that entails. We believe God is at work on campus, and we believe our church is being called to participate in what God is already doing on campus. It is not just our background. It is our mission ground. And we believe that this isn't just a good idea for our church, but that it is, in fact, God's idea. That when we see this playing out in the, in the early church, which we have recorded for us in Scripture in the book of Acts. And one thing that we learn when we look at the book of Acts, and we see it over and over and over again, is that the early church and the early church planters paid close attention to their location. Where were they? And they were paying very close attention to where God was at work in their location. And they asked, how can I participate? They prayed, God, open doors in this place and to these people. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul models this for us. Paul arrives to the ancient city of Athens. Many of you heard of Athens in Greece, in the Roman Empire. It was an important city. And the first thing Paul does, if you noticed, in verse 17, is he goes to the synagogue and to those who are devout. And, he, and it says that he reasons with them. He opens the scriptures, the ancient scriptures, and he says, this is Jesus. Uh, this is what the scriptures are talking about. Jesus, the Messiah, and Paul loved to do that. He always did that. It was his practice to go into a city and to find the synagogues and to find those who are devout already and reason with them from Scripture and have theology discussions about how Jesus is the Messiah and how his, cro how his, how his cross, how the crucifixion was not a sort of going off the trail, but actually right in the beating heart of God's plan. That's what Paul loved to do. But if you notice in our text this morning, it says right after that, that Paul goes where? Where does he go? He goes to the marketplace. And it says that he talked to the people in the marketplace, anyone who was there, and he did it for days and days and days. The Greek word for marketplace is agora. Agora. This means that Paul does not limit his ministry to the traditional religious types, but he extends his ministry beyond the church doors, as it were. 
And so I think Acts 17 is an exciting model for us to camp out in, not just this morning, but for years to come. Right away, I see three overlaps that are amazing between this ancient account and our vision as a church. The first thing is that Paul goes to Athens. That alone is amazing. It shows us that God wants churches in cities like Athens. I'm not talking about Athens, Ohio yet. <laughs> I'm talking about Athens, Greece. And this is good because Columbus is a city like Athens. One historian calls Athens in Paul's day a university town. It was a cultural and intellectual center to the entire Roman Empire. It attracted artists. It attracted tourists. It attracted, most of all, guess who? Students. Paul goes to Athens. We should too. Paul goes to the Agora. Again, that's the marketplace. And if Athens is like Columbus, the Agora to me is like campus. First of all, the Agora was where people went to talk about ideas. You saw that in our text. Paul is talking to, you know, the average Epicurean and Stoic just mulling about, talking about Epicureanism and Stoicism. Where do you see that in Columbus? You see it on campus. Second of all, the Agora was full of energy, much like High Street and North Campus is. One historian describes the Agora as, quote, a square surrounded by public buildings, temples, shops. Many people would visit the Agora for business, shopping, leisure, public assemblies, raising canes. And third of all, the Agora was deeply religious. It was full of temples and statues of gods like Athena and Roma and even former rulers like Caesar Augustus. And you might not consider campus a religious place. That might not be the first word you think of when you think of Ohio State's campus, but it is. Some of our temples just happen to look like football stadiums and lecture halls. But I also counted 15 student organizations, faith-based student organizations on Ohio State's Interfaith Association. And that's just who's listed. Paul goes to the Agora, so should we. And then Paul goes to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, you see that starting in verse 22 of our text this morning. He's invited to speak at the Areopagus, which means literally the hill of Ares, that ancient god of war. This was a literal hill just beyond the Agora. But it was also the name of a council that met there called the Areopagus. It was kind of a city council or a university board. And they wanted to hear more about what Paul was talking about because they cared deeply about what was being talked about in their city. And Paul gladly takes the news of Jesus and his resurrection and what that means for us to them in a language that they could understand. 
So I see an amazing resource in this text for our church, don't you? I would encourage you to to spend time in this text beyond this Sunday gathering to explore what it could look like to, to not just be near campus, to be for campus. And I want to give you three words to ruminate on when you look through this text later. Respect, represent, and risk. Those three words. First, if we're going to be a church for campus, we need to be a church that is well known for its respect of campus. And in three ways, we respect common ground. So take a look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So Paul begins his message, his address, with what he has in common with them. In this case, their religious impulse. He respects this common ground. And so should we. Secondly, we will respect common grace, what has been called common grace. God's common grace is not God's saving grace. God's common grace is grace from God all the same, but it's not his savings grace. So it's God is gracious. Jesus says God sends needed rain. Lord, may you spare it for the next 20 minutes. But Jesus says God will send his much-needed rain on both the just and the unjust alike. That's common grace. We don't deserve grace ever. And all the things in this world that God sort of withholds immediate judgment is a common grace. And because of common grace, someone who is not saved by Jesus can still live well in the world that Jesus made in many areas. So I, for one, am glad for God's common grace because the engineers of my car that got me here this morning may not have been in relationship to Jesus, but because of common grace, they can make a pretty safe car. I read books all the time from folks who are not in relationship to Jesus, but they help me in different ways navigate this world. I want to be scripture shaped. Scripture is my highest norm, and it will be for our church always. It's our authority. We bend our knee to God's word, even when it's uncomfortable. And so we will filter everything we read, everything that we encounter. But we will also avail ourselves of common grace wherever we see it and encounter it. Because all of truth is indeed God's truth. And so notice in verse 28, Paul respects common grace here. He actually quotes their poets. He's not quoting scripture to them. Because they have no reference yet to Scripture. He'll get there. But right now, he says, even some of your poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. And then he goes off of that and connects it to the Lord Jesus. He's not replacing or supplanting the authority of God's word. No way. Paul would never do that. 
but he is respecting common grace. Paul can affirm truth from this poet because all of truth is God's truth. So we do that too as a church that is for campus. And then also we respect common dignity. Verse 22, if you take a look again, Paul is, is I'm sorry, verse 16 would be a better place to look. Paul was waiting for them, his colleagues at Athens, and his spirit was provoked. That's a very intense word. Why? He saw that the city was full of idols. So notice that Paul is very distraught and disturbed. He doesn't look at these idols, these objects of false worship, and say, oh, cool. This is awesome. I've always wanted to see Athena in person. He doesn't do that. He is distraught. He is sad. It's like how you feel in your core sometimes when you're just shattered. That's how he feels. But how does he translate that feeling into action, the apostle? Not culture war, but respectful engagement. He respects them. He respects their inherent dignity. I mean, first of all, the folks in the Agora and at the Areopagus are image bearers of the living God, and Paul respects that. Because they're made in God's image, they have a worship impulse. They were made to worship. They are worshipers by design, God's design. And Paul works with that. He wants that impulse to land on the Lord Jesus. He doesn't yell at them for getting it wrong. He reasons with them and wants them to get it right. But second, notice the folks in the Agora have a history and Paul knows it and respects it. This is how he's able to talk about this sort of temple to an unknown God. Has that ever confused you if you've heard this story before? Who is this unknown God and why does Paul latch onto it? Well, Paul knew their history and so he's able to talk about it. Long ago, Athens had a plague. This may be close to the bone. <laughs> they sacrificed to all the gods they knew to get rid of this thing. But when it kept raging, a man went up to the Areopagus Hill and released sheep. And wherever those sheep stopped moving and running, they erected an altar and sacrificed the sheep at those altars. And they called those altars the, 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 basically the altar to the unknown gods, the ones we don't know about, because maybe they will help relent this terrible plague. And they kept those up. Why do you think they kept those up? The plague went away. And so suddenly that validated this idea that there are gods we don't know about. Paul knows this. And he says, what an amazing opportunity to give the news of Jesus. He's basically saying, you are wrong about the object of your worship, except in one area. Your willing admittance of ignorance. You are saying you don't know. 
And here, let me tell you about the risen Jesus. This is who you're missing. He's not one of many gods. He is the Lord, the risen one. The one true object of worship. But I love that Paul did his homework, don't you? Isn't that just compelling? He just knew while walking into the city what their hopes were, what their dreams were, what their fears were. Do you realize that those in Athens were basically living in perpetual fear of God or the divine? Because they didn't want a plague to come and they didn't know how to appease God. And Paul respectfully enters into that story and says, your dreams, your hopes, and your fears are only satisfied and met in the Lord Jesus. But in order to do that, he had to do his homework, didn't he? What that means for us then is that we are going to be a church that does the same. We are going to respect, respect this area that we live in. We won't bulldoze, we won't bulldoze Ohio State in the name of Jesus. We will respect Ohio State in the name of Jesus. And this means that hope will be a church that builds bridges. We will constantly try to find areas of overlap with those in our city. And we'll use these areas of overlap to have meaningful conversations about the truth of Jesus and to humbly learn even from our neighbors and colleagues. When I meet someone who, who knows more about how to care for the environment, say, than I do, I can say to them, as a Christian, as a follower of the Lord Jesus, I am called and I am invited to steward the world that he made. It's in, it's in the scriptures that I submit to. I noticed how careful you are about the environment. Will you teach me? Will you, will you help me? That's a posture of respect. We will speak their language. We will translate the never-changing gospel in a language that our neighbors will understand. We will not assume that they know what we mean when we say the word God. By the way, if it starts spitting rain, we're going we're gonna to push through. Is that cool? You guys can like hop into the cars and take the windows down a crack or, or something like that. But I'm just going to get wet, and you don't need to feel bad. Deal? We're going to push through. <laughs> and maybe you'll get a shorter sermon. So some of you are starting to pray for rain now. Um, we, we're going to speak their language. We're not going to assume people know what we mean when we say God or sin or even Jesus, I mean, or even resurrection. Because after all, the Athenians, they didn't know what Paul meant by resurrection. Paul had to unpack this. Finally, when he does with the Areopagus, they understood. And what did they do? They heckled him. They're like, that's ridiculous. Dead people don't rise. Not everybody heckled him. But clarity happened in that moment. This is not just some God named resurrection here. This is Jesus risen again. Okay, so we're going to speak language. We're going to use the poets of our day, just as Paul did in his. We need to understand how to speak about Jesus using our filmmakers, our musicians, our professors. And then, like Paul, we're going to do our homework, okay? We're going to not simply trammel others, but we're going to learn their stories. What are their deepest fears, hopes, joys, and angers? How do we know? We ask. We listen well. That's our posture as a church, okay?
Being a church for campus involves no less, okay? Number two, I said represent. So this is important because we respect campus life, but we also represent Jesus on campus life. Remember salt. We talk about this a lot. Salt, to be salt must be two things. What are they? Do you remember? Distinct and immersed. Immersed. So salt, if it's distinct, but it's like left in the counter and not in the food, no effect. On the other hand, if we just jam salt into our steak, but the salt isn't salt, it doesn't have the properties of salt, guess what happens? Nothing. For salt to do salt's work, it needs to be distinct and yet immersed. And so Hope Church, we will respect the life of campus, but we will also be different. We will, we will represent Jesus to campus. We must remain distinct. So to do this, we're going to notice spiritual hunger on campus. Paul is able to walk with the Epicureans, the Stoics, and the God-fearers. As it says in verse 18, if you take a look, three people with radically different ideas of the divine. But all three, Paul notices, are spiritually hungry. Solomon in, in the book of Ecclesiastes says that the human heart has built into it a hunger, a spiritual hunger. It says that God set eternities into our hearts. Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. So everybody that we meet and talk to is spiritually hungry, whether they admit it or not. And what we do to be a representative of Jesus is we notice. We notice that spiritual hunger. And then we challenge, respectfully, of course. But what we do is we challenge false objects of worship, things that we give our love and our devotion and our attention and our lives to. And we, and we, and we notice that that's a spiritual hunger in itself, and yet we offer Jesus as the fulfillment of that longing. Paul's not afraid to say in our text that they are wrong, and neither should we. But notice what he says is wrong. Not their impulse to worship, their objects of worship. And so looking at verse 29, being then God's offspring, which is another way for Paul to say to them in ways they understood, God alone is creator. Okay, just God. He goes on. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. See, idolatry is what Paul is confronting here. And that's when we confuse creation and creator. It's whenever we elevate any aspect of creation to the status of creator. Anything. And this can be good things. This can be family life. This can be health. This can be harvest. And so on. And what we do is we elevate those things to the place of God and we give them our obedience. We sacrifice to them. We give to them our love, our devotion. We make major life-altering life decisions in, for them.
to represent Jesus, we need to recognize that there are unique idols on campus. Some are traditionally religious, like Paul's situation. Others will be harder to detect, but equally there. Academic success. Victory. (laughs) Pleasure. I mean, you name it. What we do finally then is commend Jesus. What Paul does here is a model for all of us. We notice spiritual hunger. We challenge the limits of that object of worship. And then we say, look how Jesus in my life fulfills that same longing. Recently, as I was driving west into Columbus from I-70, I noticed an old church spire in the cityscape. And maybe some of you have noticed this as well. And I thought about it. There was a day when driving into, or maybe horse and buggying into uh, the city of Columbus, that spire was the largest, tallest object in our city. But now there are, of course, skyscrapers that, that tower above it. When people approach our city now, we see business buildings. It's been said that you can know what a city worships by their architecture. That was true in Paul's day. As he looked around and saw these temples. It's also true today. So for us to represent Jesus, we need to first be well acquainted with the objects of worship in our midst. And the best place to start, friends, is with ourselves. We who love Jesus and worship him still struggle with idols in our hearts, don't we? What are we tempted to elevate above Jesus in our daily life? Excellence, education, success, comfort, what is it? If we struggle with that, it's likely because we are living in Athens. This is the air we're breathing. And it's the air our neighbors are breathing too. And so now ask yourself, how does Jesus ultimately satisfy you when you battle those idols of the heart in your life? When you come to the end of your rope with your pursuit of academic excellence and you say, this is futile, I'm done. And you come to Jesus and you experience the rest that only he can bring. How now can you communicate that to your friends and neighbors? That's that's what we're after as a church. The Epicureans in Paul's day sought pleasure and minimized pain. We could say to them, Jesus alone brings pleasure pleasure that lasts forever and instead of avoiding pain we recognize that pain is an intruder on this broken world that Jesus stands to redeem forever we talk about Jesus like that for the Stoics that Paul encountered they sought virtue and did you know that Stoicism is making a comeback anybody know this I mean just go to the dailystoic.com and you will see that this is like a very popular way to view the world right now. Stoicism. It's like cool. You don't believe me. It's cool. It's cool to be a Stoic right now. I'm just saying. They seek virtue. Okay? They seek virtue and they seek sort of this life where where it's like they're pursuing the good life. And they're not letting things mess with that. There are book titles that 
the bookstore that have bad words on them that are promoting this view of life. The art of dot, dot, dot. <laughs> okay? So we could say to a Stoic, only in Jesus can we admit our lack of virtue. Only in Jesus are we forgiven for our lack of virtue. And only in Jesus can we pursue virtue from the inside out with changed hearts as children of the living God. There were God-fearers that Paul was talking to as well. They were interested in God but not committed all the way. How does full-on commitment bring joy in your life? You can talk about that. See, that's what it means to represent Jesus on campus. We ask these kinds of questions. We represent Jesus on campus. We respect campus. And then finally and quickly, we risk on campus. We take risks on campus. We can't be a church for campus if we're not going to be a church that that takes risks. We risk, first of all, being strange, okay, being weird. Paul says Jesus was raised from the dead. Look with me again in verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, what happened? Some mocked. Earlier in verse 19, those in the Agora took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, can we know what this new teaching is that you present? Verse 20, for you are, you're saying some strange stuff. Okay, translation. Christians are weird. We just are. We believe in some weird things. Not because they're weird and we want to be weird. But Jesus rose from the dead. And sometimes we're like, oh, people in ancient history were more gullible than we are. You know, that's why the resurrection story took root. And that's why the Jesus story took root. They just believed in weird stuff like that. No, they didn't. They were smart. Paul gets heckled. He gets called a babbler. You're a babbler, they say. Do you know what that word is? It's a word literally means like you're a bird that gathers scraps. And the, and the charge was... You are just sort of this popularizer of weird stuff, gathering thoughts about life here and there. They thought, they thought he was weird. And what we need to do if we're going to represent Jesus on campus with respect is we need to just basically own that. We just need to own it. It's often been said that the risen Jesus and following the risen Jesus is kind of like, punk rock, or I have to say this, it's kind of like the punk rock of our day. It's like very non-conformist to be a Jesus follower right now. Paul, Paul would be like, yeah, I told you that in Romans, be not conformed to this world. There are bumper stickers that say, keep Austin weird. Talking about Austin, Texas. There's a great book title by Michael Frost that says, Keep Christianity Weird. And that's what we're going to be if we're going to be faithful to Jesus on campus. We're, we're already strange, and we're only going to get stranger as time goes on. And the second thing we want to risk is offending others, but for the right reasons. Paul is respectful, yes. He can hold his own on the campus of the, of the Agora, yes. But he ultimately entrusts himself to God and he calls on those who are listening. He calls on them to repent. 
Repentance turning from their false, destructive objects of worship to true worship in the Lord Jesus. And that call to repentance is, is just inherently offensive to the human pride. It involves admitting being wrong. I mean, who loves admitting being wrong? It means admitting desperate need at the very, very, very bottom of who you are. It's not like I kind of need some help. It's no, I need saved all of me. That's, that's inherently offensive if you're hanging on to your ego. It involves submission to King Jesus. And when we love being in control, submitting to another is inherently offensive. But to those who have done it, we know the offense of the gospel is oh, but short-lived. Because once we do lay down our pride, and once we do admit our deep need, we are enveloped by the love that we were made for. We were designed to be in submission to the Lord Jesus. He is the one true authority that brings life. It's the paradoxical way of, of Jesus. When we serve him in obedience, we are most truly alive. And so even though Paul is deeply respectful, he challenges them with this exclusive claim of King Jesus. He does, he does, and we, we're going to have to as well. We're going to risk being weird because we're going to talk about the resurrection. Sorry, <laughs> it's just what we're going to do. We're going to be a church that just really camps out on the resurrection as long as we're a church. When we stop doing that, we're no longer a church, by the way. But we are going to be big on the resurrection. And we're going to risk being weird and we're going to own it. I mean, for so many decades, uh, the church in America has been obsessed with being relevant, that word relevant. And I'm all about relevance. I want to be relevant. I think we learned that from this passage. Paul speaks in their language and he translates the gospel to ways that, that, were, that would be relevant to their time and place. And so that's cool as long as we risk and admit that we are very weird too. <laughs> We're very different. We hold a, a different way of viewing life and a different way of viewing what flourishing means and a different way of ordering our desires and a different way of ordering our bodies and, and in viewing our bodies, a different way of doing basically everything. We, we, we cannot in the name of relevance pitch that stuff. We center our lives around a person who rose from the dead. And so we take risks. We are respectful. We are representatives. And we are risk takers. Because, listen, if Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. And, and there were a few names at the end of this account that, that come up. Dionysius and Demarius. And then it says, and a few others. And they understood, if this is true, this changes everything. And the call of Jesus cut 
through the heckling of their friends. And here's the heartbeat of our church mission. You ready for it? We believe that the call that, that Jesus is right now calling people in and around the campus life of Ohio State, cutting through the heckling of their colleagues, cutting through the heckling of their family. This call is cutting through all the barriers that we would put up for them. And they are answering to that call. There is a Dionysius next door to you. There is a Demarius working with you. And we get to participate in that call. That's what it means. That's what it means to be a church, not just near campus, but for campus. Scholars point out that Paul went to cities like Athens on purpose. He knew that a university town had an outsized impact. And I kind of love that there were only two names that responded to Paul's efforts in this text. I kind of love it because it reminds me a little bit of our mission. We're not in it for numbers. We're in it to take part and participate in what God is doing. And we know that there is an outsized influence that our little church has because of where we are, because where God has placed us. And so, Lord, we do come to you this Sunday morning and we offer our church to you. We ask that you would lead us. And, Lord, we feel like you're calling us to participate in what you are doing in and around the heartbeat of our city the campus. Make us sensitive to what that means as we unfold this vision in the 10 years to come. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.